Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today's guest is Dario Donahue, an engineer driver operator with Orange County Fire Rescue and a close personal friend. Dario began his career in the fire service with Orange County in 2011. He has a master's degree in public administration from the University of Central Florida and is a major in the Air Force Reserve. He has served in some of the busiest stations in Orange County, and he was one of the people who helped me develop the curriculum for Orange County's leadership program. He has served in leadership positions throughout his time in the Air Force and Air Force Reserve. He's a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. As an active duty officer, he has been deployed three times. Uh, Those deployments took him to Afghanistan, Niger, and uh, JPED, the Joint Personnel Effects Depot in Aberdeen, Maryland. Additionally, he has been one of my mentors and a voice of reason when I couldn't find it within myself. He is an amazing leader and a humble man who serves as an example for many men and women within the fire service and the armed forces. So Dario, we've worked together for many years and I've had multiple conversations with you regarding leadership. Let's, let's start off hearing a little bit about your personal uh, journey towards developing as a leader. All right, well, first of all, I wanna say thank you for me, having me as a guest. It's a pretty cool thing that you're doing. So hopefully I can do you justice. Uh, so me, my journey as a leader. Uh, what I'll say is it, it first had to be with my dad because he was also in the Air Force on the enlisted side. He retired as a master sergeant. Um, And so what I'll say to that is, you know, as a military brat, we moved around quite a bit. And so as you know, no one really likes to move around as a kid. But because of that, it helped me to be really personable and to meet people and to be uncomfortable, um, to come out of your shell, to just be talkative. It kind of changed my personality with people. Um, And so I would say it started there with my dad. And then as I came up through high school um, or just growing up, period, I played a lot of sports. I played the basketball. I played football. I played baseball. And I think just being involved in team sports, I think it, uh, it builds character in an individual. Um, there's a lot of good things that come out of it, you know, hard work, because when things get tough, are you going to stick through? Um, but things like that, sports, I think sports definitely added some things to me. You know, it built some, some mental toughness. Um, and then when I transitioned from high school, you know, school, I say this to people, 
but like school wasn't for me. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the social aspect of it, but uh, I, I don't really like school. But growing up in my house, my parents, it wasn't, it wasn't an option. It wasn't like if I was going to go to school, it was which school are you going to go to? So I heard that my whole life. And so I chose UCF. Um, and so I think even, even that, um, my parents kind of instilling, they wanted something better um, because my dad didn't graduate high school. He went back and got his GED. My mom, she did, and she was an RN, but like they wanted better for their kids. They wanted, they wanted us to do them, do one better than them. So I think that taught me something too. So I go to UCF and again, I don't like school. I'm just there because I, that's just what I was supposed to do. And so I get there, um, I went there to play football and I talked to the coach and stuff like that and everything was good, but I get there and I, I, I'll never forget this. I go out there to try out because I was, a, I was a preferred walk-on. I go out there to try out and I felt like I was like a little fish in this big pond because this is back when, you know, it was like Dante Culpepper was a quarterback. This is back then. And these guys were huge. They were fast and strong and they were just big. And I'm just like, man, I'm way out of my league. So I'll never forget this, that I went out there for either one day or two days and I just stopped going. Right. Um, and I'm going to come back to that. But um, that me going through that and me feeling that way taught me that I'll, I will never, ever feel that way again because I sold myself short. And so as I was going through life, though, you know, like I said, I love people. So I got a chance to talk to a lot of people, a lot of great athletes. And so I started to play intramural sports and I can ball with them. And so it told me, like, I should have just stuck it out. And then I'm sure it would have it played out differently. I don't know. But that's just that's what I say to myself. But I think that helped me. That helped me grow, too, as a person going through that. I wish I wouldn't have gone through it, but I get the lesson now, now that I'm 40. Um, uh, and then, like I said, going through school, I had some hard times that first semester. And I think part of it was me um, not continuing with that football, um, the football team. I had a really tough first year. I mean, I had a partial scholarship, partial academic scholarship. I lost it. I was on probation. I had like a like a one point eight or something or a two it was it was a one point eight. It was bad. Um my whole first year. It was I think my first year I had like a one point nine I ended up with. And uh I was talking to my parents about it. And they were just like, you know, quitting wasn't an option. So they were like, you need to just figure it out. So um going through that, dealing through dealing with it, working through it. I ended up graduating with like a three or something like a, I don't know, like a 3.1 or something, which was pretty good considering how I started. Um, and then I think the next thing that helped shape me was 9-11. So I want you to picture me. I'm in college. I have a whole lot of hair. 
I mean, when I, I, I had long hair, it would come down to my shoulder when I had it braided. Um, but I can remember I was in class that day. I came out of the class and uh, people would hang out at the student union. And so I remember coming into the student union in the TVs, they had TVs in that, um, in the foyer. I don't, know, I don't know if you've ever been to that student union, but the TVs were on and they were showing the, the burning buildings. And I was like, what in the world is going on? And so as I'm watching the news, you know, I'm watching the feed, I'm watching the feed. And like, I can remember watching it for about 15 minutes. And then I walked straight over to the ROTC uh, building. And I walk in there. Again, I had, I had earrings, had a huge, huge amount of hair. And I walk in, I'm big, big baggy clothes. I walk in there and I know the guy is looking at me like, son, just go, just, just turn back around. <laughs> but uh, I go in there and I tell him that I wanted to join. What I got to do? And he was like, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to go get a haircut and take out those earrings and then come back and see me. And so I knew, I knew when he said that to me, he thought I wasn't going to show back up. Right. Yeah. Um, I went out and got a haircut and came back the following day. And um, I say, I think, I think the lesson I learned there was like, it's like being selfless and like, there's things that are way bigger than you right in the world. And so um, I try to teach my kids that too, just being selfless and being a servant. Um, as, as I'm growing as a man and as a leader in, in both the fire department and in the military, I know that people respect that ab about individuals because I, I do um, that leadership quality. Um, and so then as I'm pushing forward again, I get, uh, I get, I get deployed, not deployed, I get stationed rather to Minot, North Dakota after graduating. And it took me, it took me five years to graduate. Again, I don't like school. It took me five years to graduate. Um, but I did it. And out of all the places that they, that they could have sent me to, they sent me to North Dakota, Minot, North Dakota. And so I'm literally going from, I graduated in December. I'm literally going from like, I don't know, in, in the wintertime, it's like what, mid sixties, roughly, right? Mm -hmm. Here in Orlando. And then I get to Minot and it's no joke. Wind chill is like negative 60. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. And so um, that was a shock to me. And so I think, what that did for me though is is because because that place and it was a it was a great place it was a great place for people the the environment was kind of i would say the, the environment sucked because it was so cold but because it was so cold and there was nothing out there legitimately there was nothing out there it made the people really come together like as a community so, I mean, the nicest people in the world. Um, and so I, I know what I learned about that is, is just even, even the enlisted folks and the officers, that relationship, you know, people talk about the fraternization in the military. It's, it's, a, it's a huge deal. You're not supposed to do it. But in locations like that, I'm not going to say um, 
I won't say they didn't, they didn't follow, they still follow the rules, but I think like no other place I've ever been to, the enlisted and the officers kind of, they were a little bit closer than normal um, because there was limited places to go. Um, and so, but what that did was it, it helped me understand the enlisted people better. Um, and so where, where normally, for example, if, if, you know, one of my troops asked me or invites me to a party, I'd go and then I'd leave. I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't want to be around at the end because I know what happens the later you're at a party. Excuse me. So that's normally what I do. Well, there, it just, it just is what it is. And so I got a chance to really have some really good conversations and spend, and spend more time uh, with my enlisted troops. And so again, it, it just helped me understand them better and it helped me be able to relate because, and, I, and like you, like I'm sure you know, you know, people are people, they're all the same. It doesn't really matter what color you are, right? Um, once you have a conversation with somebody, you see a whole lot more similarities, similarities than differences just right. by having a conversation. So I know I learned that at Minot, but going through it, again, it sucked. Um, and it was only the weather, is what I mean by it sucked. Um, so then as I'm transitioning, uh, I get deployed when I was there. And this is a long story, so tell me if you want me to shut up. <laughs> no, keep going. This is good. All right. So um, when I was in the military, I get deployed. I volunteered for a deployment. And in this deployment, we went to, uh, well, I went by myself because I volunteered for it. It was a onesie spot. And so I volunteered to go to Afghanistan, Kabul, Afghanistan, in a position, they called it the Joint Visitors Bureau, excuse me, the JVB. Um, and so the best way to explain the position was, uh, you know, so, so when you have distinguished visitors, so like generals or congressmen or whoever, they'll come over, but before they come over, I'll be talking to their exec. Um, and so they'll tell me what they want to see. I'll build an itinerary form. And then I have a, a detail. I had a detail who would be like their, their security while they're here. Even, even though they bring their own group, you know, we have our detail as well because we were, we were well-versed in the area. So we had our little detail to help navigate the place. Um, and so, you know, everything leading up to that point helped me in that position because in there, I was a second lieutenant and I, I have a direct report to a two-star general, right? Who's on, who's on the base. And, you know, I tell him who's coming. Um, <laughs> let me tell you the story first. <laughs> <laughs> so it was my job to tell him who's coming. Uh, this guy's name was General Brennan. Really, really cool guy. So again, I'm a second lieutenant. I go up to him. This, it's my first week there. And I'm telling, okay, I got General Petraeus coming. You know, General Petraeus, four-star, huge, huge deal. And uh, I come in there. I'm nervous. I walk into his office. I'm stuttering and stammering. And I can't get the words out, right? 
and he's looking at me. You know how when somebody, you know, is stuttering and you're like, you're trying to help them, like you're, you know, you're doing this with your head. <laughs> so he's doing that to me. He was like, LT, stop. He was like, listen, you have all the information that I need. You have that. And I need it. You got to give it to me. <laughs> he was like, I need you to relax and just talk to me. Don't look at this. Don't look at my stars up here. Every single morning, I get up just like you do. I roll out of bed. I have to sit up. I have to put my uniform on just the same way as you do. So he was like, I forgot what his first name was, but he's like, this is my name. I'm this, Brennan. I need you to walk back out of my room. Let's try this again. I walk out and I'm like, all right. I go in there and I just start talking. And so that right there, that interaction, that interaction with that general, he does, he will never know this, but that marked how I speak to all, all my superiors. I, I just speak to them very direct, straight up. I just give it to them how it is. And most people appreciate it. Right. But he, he, he created that space for me and I wouldn't have had it if he wouldn't have done it. But, um, but back, so in that position I was in is again, it's called the joint visitors bureau. You know, it's kind of like the secret service. So when people came in, you know, the exec would tell me what he wanted to see. I, I'd create an itinerary and then we go do it in country, wherever in Afghanistan, whatever he wanted to see, we go do it. Um, and so again, it, it just, it helped me, it, it helped me to, to be a planner in that position. You know, it helped me to talk to superiors in that position. Um, and it helped me to, to, to think quickly because with the general Petraeus, I'm going to tell you this story too, because this was, this one, Mark, it was a huge deal. So um, General Petraeus couldn't have been the first week when I was there. It had to be maybe about a month in. But um, we, we had like a cookie cutter itinerary, basically, like whatever we wanted to, you know, when people came in, you want, you know, we'll show them this, we'll show them this, we'll show them this kind of cookie cutter thing. We probably had like two or three of them kind of tours that we already had set up. Well, he wanted to see everything different. Nothing, nothing on our cookie cutter sheet. He didn't want to see any of that. So um, we really had to go out there and um, do the, like recon it first. And then we had to come up with like, you know, a primary and alternate and then a contingency route. We had to, we had to throw, you know, <laughs> you have these convoys. And so you had to like throw decoy convoys because back then, this is this is in when was that? This is in '05, so it was hot over in Afghanistan. Um, but it was crazy because he was so cool under pressure. So he he probably would never know this either because we're not we're not going to show him. We just want to get him get him to a place and then move him to the next. Well, you know, we were we were communicating. I always had a rabbit. I called it a rabbit, but it was like my recon guy. So he, I had, you know, um, it was a joint billet. So I had 
um, an, an army staff sergeant and um, uh, a corporal marine were in, were in my rabbit. So they were like a step, a step or two ahead of us. And so we were going to this next location and you know, my staff sergeant calls back to me. He was like, LT, uh, there, was, there was two guys, when they saw us pull up, they took off into the brush. It was, like, it was like high grass. They took off in high grass and we lost them. I'm like, what do you mean you lost them? He was like, Lou, I don't, I don't know where they went. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, all right, we'll just uh, keep an eye. You know where we're going, so keep an eye. He's like, all right, got it. So we're still we're still going. We get there, and uh, they end up staying. The rabbit stayed, and I sent somebody else to be the rabbit because I wanted I wanted his information. So he's talking to me, and he was like, "Yeah, they they went over that way." So I'm like, "All right." General Petraeus goes in. I'm talking to his exec. I'm like, "Listen, um, it, it might it, it, it it's about to go down. I I don't know for certain, but um." If I say it's time to go, it's time to go, right? He was like, all right. So, you know, they're in, he's in there. He's talking to whoever he's talking to, uh, key leader in, you know, in, in Kabul. And then uh, we're outside kind of shooting the shit. Then you hear, then you hear, uh, you hear some gun, gunshots go off. And I'm like, what? So then you start, you start to hear a lot of them. And so, I, I was like, <laughs> you know, push forward. So then you have, you know, my, my detail team, they're pushing, they're pushing forward to where the bullets are coming from, right? And me, a second lieutenant, brand new second lieutenant, I'm running forward too, right? <laughs> and, you know, like we're running into the gunfire and you can hear it, like it's whizzing over our head. You, go, you can hear it. And so we get, I don't know, probably 50 yards up. And there's, there's probably a wall in the distance, maybe. It was probably about 100 yards away. And we get about 40, 50 yards up. And I'm, you know, we're, we got a little bit of cover behind this vehicle that's parked. And I'm, I'm next to the staff sergeant. He was like, LT, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, we got this. You go back to him. And I'm like, what? He was like, this is not your job. You go back to him. And I'm like, ah, all right. So then I run back. They push forward. I run back. I go into the building. I, get, I go up, I go up, in, up in there and I, I see General Petraeus. He looks at me because I'm, I'm sure that my face is telling him everything. And, and his exec comes over. He's like, what's up? I'm like, you know, we got live rounds outside. I don't know where it's coming from. He was like, all right. <laughs> like he, he was just like, all right. And I'm like, what do you mean, all right, man? Like, it's time to go. He was like, you let me know if it gets serious. <laughs> <laughs> I go back outside and I'm looking. I can still hear it. I go back in and I'm like, listen, we, we should take off. General Petraeus came over and he was like, LT, are your guys good? I'm like, yes, sir. He was like, well, I'm good too then. And he just kept along with his meeting. So like what that taught me though is like being cool, like being cool under pressure. Like when it's hot, I'm talking about he didn't skip a beat, he didn't sound nervous, no nothing. 
no nothing, which threw me off. And like like I was telling, like I'm all flustered, and I'm you know, you know, Petraeus, it was just like nothing. And so I try to keep that with me too, just to kind of like when things get tough, when things feel uncomfortable or whatever. Maybe it may be inside, or maybe he's like a duck, and so on top of the water he was just sitting there, but under the water his feet are paddling. You know, I don't, I don't know. Right. But like to the eye, he just was so cool and calm, and so I took that from him. Um. The next lesson I think I learned was. My wife, all right, so it had to be for my wife. And you met my wife, Kim. She is, I call her, I call her my pit bull, right? Because she speaks up, she speaks her mind. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. She speaks her mind. Um, and, and usually that's not me. I try I try to like be tactful about a lot of stuff and not really give it to you. In the beginning, I didn't give, really give it to you straight. I would kind of like dance around it, but she's just like right to the point. Whatever. If you if you're upset about it, it just it's the it's the truth though. You truth hurts is what she always says. The truth hurts, but she just gives it to you straight. Um, so I think me meeting my wife and uh and seeing her personality and in situations, you know, where she has to give those like that honest feedback or the truth. I, I, I've definitely picked that up from her and I'm, I'm able to speak more directly to people. And, um, and so as I got that from her, I'm also assimilating everything else prior to me being with her. Um, loving just like loving to be with people like knowing how to interact so what i've done how i how i've used that is i'm able to just give it to you straight black and white and then i can still go have a beer with you you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't change anything i just i got to tell you what it is right and, and so it is what it is let's move on i'm still the exact same person i'm still going to treat you the exact same but i have to tell you because i care about you Right. And so I've definitely learned that from her. Um, and, you know, so like every every day I learn stuff. Um, I think those are the, are the real main ones that have helped mold me to the person I am today. Um, but I, I know I know they're still coming. I know they're still coming. Hope I answered that question for you. Yeah. Yeah. One one thing that I, I did want to hear about, though, um, so you served in a position where you were essentially in charge of um, a human resources type of branch of the Air Force. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so uh, I, didn't even add, I didn't even add that piece. Go ahead. So what was, what was your role and, and what were some of the challenges that you dealt with in that position? Ah, uh, for sure. Okay. Man, I, I totally forgot about that. That's okay. That's, and this is, and what you're speaking of is um, I, was a, I was the assistant director of equal opportunity. All right. That's that position. Um, 
So with that position, it's a staff position. It's outside of my normal job. <clears throat> so in order to get that position, when you, when you first get it, you have to go do like tech school basically. And um, at the time it was a schoolhouse at Patrick Air Force over near, uh, near Satellite Beach. Um, the schooling was about four months long. And so in that schooling, it, it, it's a joint school, so you have all branches there. But in that schooling, you're there and you're inundated with all this information. Um, and basically, you're doing a whole lot of case study, a whole lot of research, um, a whole lot of role playing. But it's just, it's so much, it's so much information. And it's, but it's so good. And I, I think, I think that schooling, I mean, you're just, you're, you're there in a, in a joint environment. You do a lot of role play, a lot of case study, a lot of research. <clears throat> and the information that you're given, it, but it's so much information, so much, that I think that all military members should get, but they don't. Only members in the position get it. Um, but in, in that it talks about all the discriminatory things that take place that have taken place in history. Right. And so it's, to me, it was, it's almost like, you know, the government saying, you know, they did, they did some wrong things and there, there's an actual position so that you can kind of uh, not, not investigate really, but kind of clarify, you know, things that are happening if, if, in, if and when they did. So, um, but that school messed me up though, because I was, I was hypersensitive to everything because everything is wrong. If you just, I mean, no, no kidding. If you just watch TV, it's all wrong. It's all wrong. If you, if you choose to see it, but most people don't want it. They don't really, they're not really sensitive to a lot of things. And it's just the way it is. And it's always been that way. But it's, a lot of things are just terribly wrong. But anyhow, in that position, what I had to do is, again, I'm going to say investigate, but it's really clarify. I have, you know, when people come into my office, they've been wrong. They felt like they've been wronged. Um, and, it's, and it's only for... Uh, discrimination to you know to like five you know to race excuse me color religion national origin sexual preference stuff like that right um so they've come to me because they again they they perceive that they've been wrong somehow discriminated against somehow and i would just have to clarify it and so with that you know we had to go down and we had to go down and get down to the root cause of things and so as i saw it so so in that position i did i did most of the investigative work basically for for the commanders so how how it looked was someone come into my office they they tell me you know they felt like this person had discriminated against them for let's for example for, for being a black man. And so how I always 
how I always did it was I would first have a conversation with them, right? And I would say, um, I would I would read this preamble to them. And so in the preamble, it talked about, it defined things. It talked about, um, you know, what discrimination was, what sexual harassment was. And if if you start to talk about this stuff, there's no taking it back, right? So I think sometimes, sometimes what, what I noticed was happening was, is that it was a miscommunication. A lot of times it was miscommunication. And so, but because there might be like a personality conflict sometimes, or it was a miscommunication, they would, they felt a certain kind of way without really getting, like getting down to it and say, is this really what you meant, right? And I know that you, I know that for, mo for the most part, like if you ask somebody that and they wanna hide it, then they'll say, no, of course not, right? But if then if they don't wanna hide it, then they'll just tell you straight up like, yep. And I know that it can go either way. And so I would first tell them, um, well, have you talked to them about it? And most people say no. And then I would say, well, do you feel comfortable talking to them about it? And so a lot of people would say, no, I don't feel comfortable. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Well, do you, do you think that you uh, have anybody else that could talk to them on your behalf? Most people would say no. That would be an option, I would, I would say. I would say, well, how do you feel about writing them a letter? You know, you don't have to talk to them. You can write them a letter. Um, and they would, you know, most people would, would say no. And I'm fine with that, okay. And so then I would, you know, I would go forward to say, well, well, tell me, and you got to be specific because that's how it works. You have to know like what they did, when they did it and how they did it. You got to like break the W's, the, the five W's. I need all of them and be really, really specific. And so we would have this conversation. I had this packet and I would give it to them to go fill out and think about it and then come back to me filled out because by me by me sending them away I'm not really sending them away but by by me giving them the packet having that conversation not challenging them but challenging them to maybe talk about it with the person um it gives them an opportunity to think about it and to maybe use one of those steps and so and so if they felt like they still couldn't do it, then they'd fill the packet out and they'd bring it back to me. And so then we'll, we'd go forward. Um, and so, like I was saying, like for me, what, what I learned in that position is like, I would question myself, like why is there even a position called the equal opportunity officer? Like why would there even be a position? Right. And, and to me, the answer was, you know, the military knows exactly that it's happening. Like, why else would you have it if it wasn't happening? Right. Right. So. Um, and so what I what I noticed, though, in the position was a lot of times the personnel filling those billets were females or people of color. Now you will have, there, there were, you know, white males and there were some white females, but the majority, that's what you saw. 
And so that was telling for me because those are the ones that I had to fill the most, gender and people of color. And then toward the end, when I was in that role, it started to be some sexual preference as well, um, which was telling to me. It was very, very interesting. Um, and so as I, as I was doing you know, these cases or in, you know, clarifying what they were saying, what I found was it was really hard to prove if someone did it or not. Um, because there's a lot of, you know, it's, there's a lot of ways to hide your true feelings or you can disguise um, discriminating towards somebody a lot, of, a lot of ways. And I don't want to, you know, give people away, but, you know, there are ways. And so uh, a lot of times. Well, do you feel that sometimes people have biases or, you know, maybe they're closet racist, but they really don't even believe that they are racist? It's funny you're saying this because lately I've been having some conversations with some you know, pretty good friends of mine on, on this very topic. Very, very interesting. Um, Cause I, I think in, in my experience, um, when I've experienced or heard comments or witnessed some form of discrimination and you try and address it with that individual, they deny and sometimes it's just uh, like ignorance, pure ignorance. And I, I mean, I've never been in a position like what you were describing. Um, but I, I was just wondering if you uh, ever experienced that kind of attitude or mentality. Uh, I mean, 100% for sure. Okay. Uh, and so I think ignorance is probably the best word. Um, and so like I was telling you, like I, I've, I've literally had this conversation. And so what I say is, again, all these things that help shape the person that I am. And so for me, when, when, I, see, when I see something like that in my personal life or even on, my, on the professional side, I will address it. And I'm addressing it because I, I need to educate you because right now, like you sound real ignorant, right? That's what I'm thinking in my mind. And so I, I can talk about it without being emotional as well or getting like, you know what I mean? Like getting mad. I can definitely talk about it. And I feel like if, if I educate you on it, if I talk to you about it and I tell you, you know, it's, it can be perceived this way or this is how I do what you just did or what you just said. If I'm telling you, like everything that you did before that, it was whatever because you didn't know, but I just told you. And so at this point, moving forward, if we're here again, now you're doing it because you're choosing to do it. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not ignorant anymore. Like it's intentional. Right. So uh, 100%, I've, I've seen it. And even after I've said it to some people, I've still seen it afterward too. But then it just as equal though, after a conversation, 
some people I don't see it again. Now I'm not I'm not saying that uh, you know I'm not saying that they still don't feel that way, but in front of me, I just don't see it. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. Okay. Well, one thing that I wanted to um, that, that that's kind of a pretty that's a good segue into one of the things I wanted to um, talk about with you based on your experiences and your, your education um, within that role. I've been in the fire service. I, I started off as uh, a reserve firefighter 23 years ago. Uh, I got hired on um, as a full-time firefighter. And so I, I've spent 23 years in the fire service and I would say it's less prevalent now than when I started out, but, you know, through, through conversations um, and, and personal experience uh, with, you know, with many men and women in the fire service, I've gotten, um, I've gotten the sense that there's still, you know, there, there remains some subtle and sometimes not so subtle forms of racism and misogyny. Um, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the, the fire service here. Um, what are, what are some of your experiences or maybe experiences of others um, that you're aware of that may be more profound than yours? Um, I, I can, I can speak on the misogyny thing. I know two good examples. Um, right when you were saying it, like right off the top, I can remember. Um, one, of them, one of them was when I was actually in that schoolhouse I was telling you about at Patrick. And it was a weekend. I came back and I went to the fire station at the time. I was at 71. I went to 71. And uh, I would just come by just to say what's up to the guys. And we had a rookie. It was a female rookie. and you know, they were all, we were all in the kitchen, just kind of hanging out, just catching up. And the female rookie was doing the dishes and, you know, it is what it is. Rookies, that's, that's their duty. They're doing whatever. And I can't remember what we were talking about, but someone made a comment about females, something about something, something, something about females. Right. And everybody thought it was so funny. Right. But again, I'm hypersensitive right now. Right. I told you I'm in that school. And so I'm looking at them and then I turn and I looked at her and like, she don't say nothing. And again, so she's a rookie. So I know that she's not going to say anything, but I like, I stopped though. And I was like, I mean, she's standing right there, right? Like she's right there. And they were like, what? And I'm just like, what do you mean? What? Like you said, blah, blah, blah. And she's standing right here. That's terrible. And so, again, I don't remember exactly what was said, but I clearly remember that incident. And there was another one, there was another guy when I was at Station 50. And uh, this guy, he, I don't know if it was a guy, but it was guys. I would say guys. They would always, not always, but they, they would say sometimes about how uh, females in the job like sometimes they felt like the job required you to be strong right and so i would always say to them 
listen, whatever the standard is, right? Draw up the standard, whatever it is, because you have to have a standard, whatever it is. If the standard is here and the female meets that standard, they're good to go for me, right? right. They're good to go for me. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you this too. There's a lot of guys that I would, <laughs> I would much rather go with this girl over here than this guy. Oh, absolutely. Right. right. So I'm just like, you can't just generalize stuff like that. And I'm like, what's going to end up happening is when you make lieutenant, you're going to have a lot of females on your crew. <laughs> and what happened? The dude, one of the guys made lieutenant. Sure enough, he had females on his crew. And it, but then it changed him for the good, though. That's good. Yeah. Um, now, uh, we're talking about, like, discriminatory stuff, uh, like race yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, because I'm sure at the firehouse, there has been a lot of discussion about Black Lives Matter, um, racism that um, is you know, the, the racial targeting certain police officers or law enforcement officers, you know, um, I would imagine that it has been a topic around the, the kitchen table. For sure. For sure. Um, and so, so a huge one is, you know, just, just because the climate is how it is right now nationally, right? So definitely those conversations come up. And, you know, police officers are our brothers, right? So, you know, we run yeah. into them a lot. You know, I have a lot of respect for them. That being said, though, I also see what right looks like. I know what right looks like and I know what wrong looks like, too. Right. And so the stuff that we see on TV, to me, a lot of times is wrong. But what I will say is a lot, of, a lot of times I really can't make a judgment because we only see part of the picture, too. Right. Um, and I, and, I, and I, can, I can attest to that. You can only see part of the picture. You don't see the whole thing. You're not, you're not there in the moment. I, I get all of that. Um, and so, but in those conversations that are on the kitchen table, like some of these, some of these people, and again, to me, it's ignorant. They make so many ignorant comments. Um, and 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 what I what I really what I really can't stand is is once once someone let's just say that once someone gets shot or they pass away, right? Then they they start to talk about the person's history, so that I guess it justifies the action. And so, like, but the people talking about it at the station, like, they're eating that thing up. And I'm like, I don't even, it, what they did prior to that moment, I mean, prior to that day, doesn't even matter. Right. Has, n has nothing to do with anything. Right? We're talking about the situation that they were in and what ended up happening. Um, so that, that bothers me a lot. Um, and again, it's, it's all ignorance. It's all ignorance. And an, another big one that I hear a lot, I'm not, I'm not sure if you've ever heard this, is about um, the Civil Rights um, Civil Rights Act. Excuse me, how they, they say that, you know, being a, being a Black or being a minority or having the trifecta, that this, they call it the, the trifecta. This is coming out of somebody's mouth. The trifecta being... Uh, a black female and 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 she's gay like that's the trifecta 
Right. And I'm like, what? Like that's that person's gonna be a chief. And I'm like, man, like what are you even talking about? Yeah. How do you how do you even have a conversation with somebody who says that? You know what I'm saying? And so now now again, I feel obligated, like I gotta have this conversation with you because I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Right. I hear I hear all the time. So one of the things that I mean, because we're we're talking about we're talking about leadership here. Right. And if we're being specific about the firehouse, there's somebody at that station that sets the tone. And typically it's the company officer. Right. If if they're a strong company officer, sometimes it's the engineer or the senior firefighter. Yep. Yep. Um, but there's somebody there that is setting the tone. They are either nipping things like that in the bud and having a candid conversation and, and attempting to to educate the people around the table or the people on the crew. Right. Um, and one of the, I would say it's the foundation of effective leadership is effective communication. Being able to communicate with, with those people on your crew and, and by communicate, I mean, you know, you're doing a lot more listening than talking. You, you have to listen to get to know them, know their background, that sort of thing. Um, and, and getting to know them, you learn how best to communicate with them, how best to educate them. So, but even if you're brand new, if you're the brand new leader of that group, there's still a responsibility to nip that sort of thing in the bud. Um, and I would say, you know, by and large, and I, I meant to look up the numbers on the census, um, but there is, you know, the fire service in the United States is predominantly white male, you know, in your department, that's predominantly white male. Right. Um, and I'm sure there's been times where you're, you are the only black guy on the crew. Yeah, most of the time. Yeah. Now, when when conversations like just anything racial, any any type of racial discrimination, when there's conversations where there are ignorant views being expressed, you have the knowledge and the skills at communicating uh, to be able to educate those individuals. If there's a lieutenant there, you know, it really should be them that addresses it. If you have, uh, and, and what, I'm, what I'm going for right here, and I'm, I'm stammering a little bit, is if there is a white lieutenant and the rest of the crew is white and there's one black guy mm-hmm. or any mi- minority group, um, and there is some ignorant views being expressed. Is there, is there some advice that you could give 
to that company officer on how to address that type of situation? So that's going to be tricky. And I, the reason why I say that it's tricky is because, and, I, and I, I'm, 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 I'm going to be guessing what you're trying to get at. And so I think what you're getting at is um, because, because of, you know, that minority is there by himself or herself and having to deal with this conversation because it's, it's being brought up by somebody, like how should that company officer, you know, proceed or navigate or facilitate this? Um, and I'm saying that it's tricky because, so for example, if it was, if I was that one minority, I, I would feel totally fine. Like I can have a conversation with, with all y'all, you know, it's not whatever. Like y'all want to talk about it, let's talk, right? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm totally comfortable in it because I've, I've been doing it for a long time, right? But let's just say, let's, let's just say I wasn't comfortable for whatever reason, I'm new, right? That, you, you let's would, just say that I'm new. Okay. But as, so, as a new guy, you would be looking at the company officer to enter help. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, so, and so that's what I'm saying, like, it's you, you, you have to know, you have to know your crew, right? And so even as the new person, as the company officer, like on the first day, uh, you know, you got to sit down with the new, the new person and have a conversation, you know, give your expectations. You want to get a feel from that person. You can tell a lot just by having a conversation, how they, how they speak, how they carry themselves the whole nine, like in the morning time, what time they got there. You, you can just, you can pick up a lot by one talking and by two just observing and so um in that moment you have a couple of choices so as a as the company officer you can just be like nope we're not going there you can shut it down before it even gets started that can be one thing or if you're the company officer too again it, it has to be that comfortability for that individual because if he does allow it to go there and they would just talk um i'm not going to say there's anything wrong with it, but things can go hard, right? Real fast. Right. And so you're opening yourself up for that if you don't shut it down too. Right. So, um, if it starts to go to a place where you don't want it to go, you got to shut it down there too, or shut it down there. And so I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with having the conversation. Um, and some people feel differently, but again, and this is all my viewpoint, like, I feel like I'm obligated to educate people when I hear ignorant stuff. And so as long as you're able to be even keel about it and not get emotional and be able to articulate yourself, I'm, I feel good about it. If, if I'm the company officer, I'm feel, I feel good about it. But you have to be comfortable facilitating this conversation though. And so not everybody's equipped to do it. So you gotta know yourself. So it's, it's a difficult conversation. I mean, it's a difficult answer to give you I'm not being real, you know, straight about that answer because it all depends on who that person is or persons, really. Well, just like with anything, when, when you're the person in charge, there's going to be individuals on the crew that may be uh, better versed in a particular skill set than right. you. Right. Yeah. The expectation is 
that you're going to work very hard at getting better at whatever skill set you're weak in. And if you're a company officer that is, well, I mean, a lot of times we don't know what we don't know. That's right. And one of the things that was very eye-opening for me and it was, it was profound um, was, and, and I don't even know if, if somebody shared it with me or if I just happened upon it, I came across uh, the, the great challenge and my, my daughter and I watched a lot of the documentaries and I consider myself to be pretty well versed in history, but there were so many things that I was just completely ignorant to. I feel like had I been aware years ago, I would have been a better company officer. I would have been a better firefighter, just a better human being. Right. Um, I think is just the leadership aspect of it. The, um, the emotional intelligence that is required to be a good leader and the uh, being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes, be, be empathetic to their views, to their experiences, you know? Um, right. And without that ability, you're, you're really limiting your own personal growth as a leader. So, mm-hmm. so one thing that I would say to anybody listening is if you haven't already, Google the gray challenge and um, commit to, to learning, to reducing as much ignorance as possible. And, and then with that knowledge, you're armed with the ability to challenge others. Right. So talking about the company officer's role um, in setting the tone at the station and, you know, really nailing down that individual's responsibility to ensure there is limited ignorance, not just with uh, the knowledge of the job and the skills that are required to conduct yourself as a professional firefighter or EMS provider, but to, to actually limit the ignorance on social issues. Um, so if you have an individual on your crew that is harboring, you know, some racist or sexist uh, views, th- these prejudices that, you know, a lot of people keep that kind of stuff hidden. But if they, you know, open themselves up a little bit and they, you know, you're made aware of these views. I mean, it, it is your responsibility to ensure there is um, some education going on. So just like if the individual doesn't know how to, you know, probationary firefighter, doesn't know how to operate the jaws of life uh, efficiently or the hydraulic cutters efficiently, you're going to train on that. You're going to educate them. You're going to coach them and make sure that they're proficient, that 
you know, you don't have to stand over their shoulder on the next emergency, you know, um, just like that, you've got to educate them on just how important it is to limit that sort of ignorance, how when you're serving the community, you're going to interact with people from all walks of life. And as a firefighter, as a paramedic, as an EMT, it's not your job to judge them. It's your job to serve them. It's your job to take care of them. And any prejudices that you might have, you had better just leave them in your closet at home. Yeah, I agree, um, I agree with that. I so um, so 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 this is what I know. I know I know that people get socialized, um, you know, in life coming up, right? And so an example of that would be, let's just say, you know, I, my dad was in the military, like I told you before, and so we spent a lot of time in Texas, okay. And so let's say when I was growing up in Austin and in San Antonio, um, I, I would get into fights all the time with Hispanic guys. Like every day after school, this is just an example, it didn't really happen. But every day after school, I'd walk home um, from school and I'd, and I'd get jumped. I'd get jumped by some Hispanic guys, right? So that's me being socialized, you know, having to fight Spanish guys, they're, they're gonna jump me. So as I, as I grew up to be a man, now I'm walking down the street with me. It's me and my girl, right? We're walking down the street and a group of Hispanic guys are walking on the same side of the street. I'm going to feel a certain kind of way, which might have me cross the street, which might have me go into a store until they pass by. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it just is what it is. And so, what, and so I, I say that example to you because just like you said, you know, as a firefighter, you know, we're here to serve the public. And so, like I said to you before, I was at Station 50, you know, that demographic, right? It's, it's downtown Orlando. Um, and it's socioeconomically, it's on the lower side. And so, I'm not going to say a lot of times, but you'll have, sometimes, you'll have crew members, you know, not treat the people, you know, like they're supposed to. Um, and so I think part of that is, is because they don't feel comfortable in that. And I think sometimes it's them judging them because of the prejudices, because of, because of the, uh, how they were socialized or, or whatever. It has them treat, you know, the, the public a certain kind of way, which, you know, again, sometimes it's just not acceptable. And I, and I've, I've had to say something on, on a number of occasions about it um sometimes the lieutenant says nothing and so and so other times the lieutenant steps in and corrects it as well i've seen both ways um and so i i had to do it sometimes and sometimes i didn't necessarily have to have to because you know the lieutenant did um and so as i was as i speak to the crew members though you know i'd reiterate to them like some of these people that you see on the street they're one bad decision away or they're one bad decision which which forced them to be where they are you know what i'm saying and so 
I, I tell them all the time, like in my life, I mean, I don't know if you're religious or whatever, whoever you believe in, but I, I know for sure God was looking out for me because I have been given so many chances and so many passes, if you will. Like he, he has something in store for me. Like there's a bigger purpose in my life because I've been saved plenty of times, plenty of times. Um, which I'm, you know, I'm very thankful for that. But I, I tell, I tell these members like, they're not that far off from you, man. One bad decision away. That 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 you got to pass on, and that person didn't. That's it. So just treat them like, like you would treat your mom, or your sister. It should be the same way. And so if they're calling us, it's already a bad day for them. And you know, it's not for you to decide if it's if it's important or not. It's whatever. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Now, one thing that I, I, before we go, I would like to, because, you know, this, this podcast is titled From Embers to Excellence. And one of the best ways to, um, to grow is to, to fail and recover. Um, and so I, I would like you to share, if you if you're comfortable with it, you know what's maybe your biggest failure, um, whether it's professional or personally, um, but you know something a failure that was significant where you learned a valuable lesson. It shaped who you are. Something that you recovered from and just maybe how others could possibly be better for having listened to your experience and your lesson. <laughs> so, so this is, uh, this is, it's pretty intimate, right? This question. So I think my biggest failure, uh, it, it, it's on the, it's on the personal side, but it's, you know, it's intertwined with professional, um, it is, maybe I can just tell the story and then I can bring it back around. But so a few years back, a few years back, I decided to go to paramedic school. All right. Well, even before then, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pinpoint exactly when this was, but I feel like it has some residual. So, you know, I've been deployed three times. Let's start here. I've been deployed three times, two, two or, uh, Oconus, which is over the water, and one was stateside. And I think, I know, not that I think, I know that each deployment has affected me mentally and emotionally, right? And so in the beginning, I kind of just suppressed it. I held it in, and I dealt with it however I dealt with it. And so a few years back, I get deployed I come back and I'm, I know that I'm different. My relationship with my wife is different and my kids is different. And then right after that, I decide to go to uh, paramedic school. And so for, for the people who don't know what paramedic school you know, looks like, it's, it's a year of your life. And I mean, you're, you're on the go all the time, not really home. And when you're home, you're not really present because you got a whole lot of stuff to get done. Just extremely, extremely busy you know, especially with the firefighter shift. So I'm like, I'm working for 24. I have class the following day. 
the following day I have some kind of a, a ride along or some kind of a clinical that I have to do. And so my wife and I, we foster. And so during that time, we had some foster kids. And, you know, every foster kid, you know, has, you know, their traumatic uh, events that have taken place in their lives. And so they're affected some way. Um, and so they come to your house with baggage. And we'll pause right there for a second. You, um, you have your own children as well. I do. I do. I have three of my own. And, and, and most of the time we take in, we have two beds. So we normally take in two foster kids. So usually it's about five kids in my house. So my house is always humming. Right. Yeah. And so you make a good point. Like I'm, I'm, my life is already busy. Right. And so that's just, that's just me being at home with my family. Not even, not even adding in my fire job plus my reserve job. And now I've, I've added on some schooling on top of that. And so um, my biggest failure is, is trying to do too much. I, I, tr I have a hard time saying no. Right. So people in my life have, for whatever reason, they see something in me and they want me to get these, they want me to get these things, these cert certificates, these, acts, you know, whatever to help me get to another level. Because they, they, they see me being somewhere else than where I currently am. And so I have a hard time saying, no, I can't take on more stuff. And so I, I, I took it on this paramedic school. And so because of that, during that year, it was a really, really rough year, not only for me with paramedic school, but then also for my family and my foster kids. And so I don't, I mean, <laughs> not to get really into it, but it was just a really difficult year for my family, right? And so I would say we're in 2020 now, that was in 2017 to 18. And I'm just, my family, we're getting to it. We're, we're at a place now that we're, we're, we're good. But it's taken two years for us to get there. And it was all because I was, I was being selfish, one, but also, again, I just, I have, I've learned to just say no to some things. And I, I feel like things, um, timing is everything. And so it was just the wrong time. And uh, well, can you identify a specific failure that? Um, yes. And so I guess I, I didn't articulate that. So my the, my biggest failure is is like like you said, like I said, I have two foster kids, right? I have three kids. I'm married, and so my wife and I were in this together. We're a team. We talked about it. Routine, we do it all together. And so I failed her in not being around, like physically being there to help. I, I, I literally was not around that year. That was my biggest failure. And so like how I always make moves, and I think you know this now, 
like I use a Google Calendar, right? We, my wife and I, we plan things on our phone, a calendar. And so if my friends want to hang out, I'd be like, let me check my calendar. It's a, it's a huge joke to all my friends, right? I'm sure you, you know about it. I'm like, let me, let me check my calendar first, right? And so like, I, I know, I know now, if, if your family life is not good to go, everything else in your life is going to fall. I promise you. I promise you. So that is my biggest failure. That I'm trying to, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get to a place and I think I'm doing a way better than I, what I was and I'm, I'm still not all the way there. But uh, I'm definitely at a better place. Well, how did, how did you recover from that? And how could you have avoided it in the first place? Just not gone to paramedic school? Not gone to paramedic school. Okay. Uh, so. And well, you, you said something else as well. Like you, when you came back from your deployment, you know, emotionally, you were carrying some baggage as well. Yeah. So I think what I, what I could have done differently is gone to seek counseling. And so I've tried counseling before, but I really don't like doing it. I, I can't stand it. It's too, I don't know if, if they want to talk about feelings and I'm not, I didn't grow up talking about feelings in my house. You know, that's, that's, not, that's just something we didn't do. Like my parents had four boys. It wasn't a lot of talking about your feelings. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so it's just, it's just uncomfortable for me. So I think what I could do, I could, I sh I should be going to get counseling. I should, again, I know that it, I've suppressed tons of stuff. It's all inside. Um, and so sometimes I'll let things go. I'll let things go. I'll let things go. And then I blow up. Right. And that's, that's not how that's supposed to look. Um, so I know that's for sure. That's one thing I could do differently. Um, if I could play it all back again, I wouldn't have gone to paramedic school. Not at that time. I think I learned a lot of great information and I'm better for it. Um, but I, I, I wouldn't have chosen that time frame to go. So one thing, uh, you, you touched on the, the counseling. Um, I'm actually going to be interviewing, uh, a couple of mental health, uh, counselors, uh, over the, the next several weeks, one of them, well, both of them are specialists in uh, PTSD, specifically with public safety professionals. Uh, one, well, I'm sure you'll watch the episode or listen to them. Yeah. But uh, there's, there's so many different therapies out there that really don't involve any discussion of feelings. I have personal experience with it. I feel much the same way you do about opening up emotionally. Um, but there, there came a point when, um, I, I mean, I realized that a huge part of being effective as a leader is being effective as a self-leader, which includes taking care of yourself being aware of where you're at mentally and physically 
And if you don't maintain a certain level of mental and physical fitness, you're not as effective leading others. If you can't lead yourself, it's hard to lead other people. So I did my due diligence and, uh, you know, I sought out some effective treatments and uh, one, there's hypnotherapy, there's uh, immersion therapy, EMDR. Um, EMDR is, from my experience, very effective. Um, so one of the things that I'll be doing when I interview these individuals so we'll be talking about PTSD and the effects that it has, um, maybe some sources of, of that trauma and effective treatments. And I'll be posting um, links to, uh, to resources that are available. Um, so it's kind of cool that we, we touched on that. Um, but yeah, man, I, I really appreciate you sharing that stuff. And um and I know that you seem a lot happier than than you did several years ago. Good. Um, That's good that you can see. Yeah. It, I was in a place. It was there was a time frame. I was in a place. Well, that sure. was you were at station fifty at that time too, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a meat grinder. Yeah. And, you know, you see, I'm sure it just added more to whatever baggage you were carrying. Yeah, I, I know for sure it did, which is which is part of the reason why I had to leave that house. As much as I love that first do, what got me after I left was my daughter. I made the choice, but my daughter made an observation to me. At the time, she was like seven years old or something. She said, Daddy, you're not you're not grumpy anymore. <laughs> so, yeah. what, like, what do you mean? Like, I was grumpy all the time before. Like that, it, it spoke to me. So, I know during that time, you know, we were running all those calls after midnight. Don't really sleep, and then I'm supposed to be up and at it the next day because now it's family time. But I'm tired, you know, and I'm already going through some stuff. It was, I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. Oh man, thank you so much for letting me interview you. Uh, I think we covered a lot of really valuable stuff, a lot of really poignant perspectives. You know, it's just, I, I really appreciate you sharing everything that you did. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you uh, actually inviting me on. This is my first, you know, my first podcast being interviewed. It's kind of awkward, but it's kind of cool. cool man thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence with Dave Hollenbach please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content my goal is to add value to as many people as possible so if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.